Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles. Eh, doesn't sound too bad. I'll try and stay awake. If you recognize where that quote is from, you and I can be friends. <laughs> You're listening to Magic Like This, a C.S. Lewis book club podcast, although I did just open with a quote from The Princess Bride, because it felt really relevant given the nature of what we're going to be looking at today in C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. But before we jump in and before I explain why I just opened with a really bad East Coast accent... Um, my name's Christina Wallace. I'm your host, and it's been a hot minute if you have been listening to this podcast since it launched last October. I sort of came to a pause in the season at Christmas with the intention of only being away for a week or two at max, and it is now February. It's been well over a month, and so I just wanted to explain what's happened and also set some expectations moving forward. I've missed you guys, I really have. And I've been away for a myriad of reasons. Um, one was that I had a last minute visit from my family. My family booked tickets to fly from America to the UK to spend some time with me in January and it was blissful and lovely and I wasn't willing to sacrifice the precious time that I have with them given that I only get to see them about once a year. And so that happened in January and that kind of delayed uh, my launch schedule for continuing this season in the new year but I also have been hit with a couple of health problems that have really slowed me down caused some fatigue caused some some pain and and that's just meant that as an entrepreneur as someone who is really solely responsible for managing my time and creating routines and structure I had to make a game time decision to prioritize my health as I readjust to this current way of living with some uh yet to be explained health conditions. And so moving forward, I'm actually going to be releasing these podcast episodes now every other week. And that is not a permanent change. It's just uh, parts of the results of my game time decision so that I can carry on serving you and doing this podcast because I love this book club. I love talking Lewis with you, but I also want to be able to do it really well. And so to do it really well, I have to slow down. My coach says slow down to speed up and so that is what I'm doing. So you'll be hearing from me every other week for the foreseeable future but like I said that's not a permanent change. I hope to be able to go back to weekly podcast episodes at some point in the future. For those of you who are in book club I will be jumping back in there on Substack. In case you don't know this podcast accompanies a Substack community called magiclikethis.substack.com. That's where you can find us. And I do weekly newsletters. This will now be every other week newsletters accompanying each episode. I do exclusive podcast episodes over there, digging deeper into what we're looking at in the public episodes. I've got chats that I host with the book club community. It's loads of fun. And if you want to join, it's five pounds a month, magiclikethis.substack.com. That's going to be staying the same. I'm still going to be engaging in there. You're still going to be getting exclusive podcast episodes in there. All of that shouldn't really change. Right. Housekeeping done. Happy New Year, by the way. I know it's Feb, but January always feels like a bit of a sloshy month. I don't really feel like I've gone back into a new year until we sort of hit mid-February. So, you know, it's a good time to be 
relaunching this podcast and jumping back into The Screwtape Letters, which is the book we've been looking at together. If you're new here, The Screwtape Letters is a fictional book by C.S. Lewis. It's a series of letters written from one demon to another. The demon who is writing is called Uncle Screwtape, and he's writing to his nephew Wormwood, giving him loads of advice about how to tempt Wormwood's patient, which is just the human that Wormwood's been assigned to tempt and torture and lure into eternal damnation. It's a it's a cheery book. It's actually quite funny, um, although it is heavy and sometimes a little unnerving. It's done in a really funny way. It's a really clever fictional structure that Lewis has used to explore various aspects of the human condition and the things that we struggle with and temptation and the things that we struggle with in our faith. And it's a beautiful book and we've been going through it letter by letter. If you're new here, you might want to pop over and listen to some of the previous episodes, but if you don't want to, that's fine. It's not a traditional narrative. You don't have to have read the previous letters in order to understand the one that we're in today. What I would encourage you to do though is that if you haven't got a copy yet and you plan on sticking around here, definitely grab yourself a copy of Screwtape Letters because you'll enjoy this podcast a heck of a lot more if you read along with us. Okay, all that admin and housekeeping is out of the way now. Why did I open with a Princess Bride quote? Well, this letter, letter number eight, is my favorite letter in the entire book. And it feels like it's got a little bit of everything. Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters. I'm not going to do it again. My accent is horrendous. But it's got a little bit of maybe not everything, but a lot of ideas around suffering and grief and temptation and submission and ebbs and flows of life that I think we all as Christians, if you're a Christian listening to this, find ourselves kind of curious about, asking questions about at some point in our journey of faith. If you're not a Christian and you're just listening to this because you're curious about Lewis and you're curious about Christianity and you've just kind of got questions, you're so welcome here. Some of the stuff I'm going to be getting into today is really heavy on Christian theology. And so there may be times when I speak a little bit of Christianese. We Christians speak weird. We have phrases and words that normal people don't use. And we don't even realize that it sounds weird until we're talking to someone who isn't a Christian. And they're like, what the heck are you saying? And we're like, sorry. But there's might be times where I'm using a little bit of Christianese. I'll do my best to pause and explain when I can, but sometimes I also just don't realize I'm doing it because it is sort of my native language, if you will. So I want to start off by reading a quote that feels like the pinnacle of this letter. And then I want to explain the relevance of it and kind of what aspects of the human condition Lewis is really exploring in this letter and why I think it is such a cocktail of fencing and fighting and torture and revenge and monsters and all the things. I feel like it's such a cocktail of beauty and struggle and um, it, it just really draws me personally as a reader into the beauty of the human condition as it relates to knowing and being known by God. I know that sounds really abstract but Hopefully you'll understand what I mean by the end of this. So I'm going to read this quote to you and then I'm going to kind of unpack the relevance of this quote in context of the letter and what I think Lewis is trying to say to us in this letter. 
Okay, so here we go. This is a quote from letter number eight. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men, by his, we're talking about God here, his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life, on its miniature scale, will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. That is one of my absolute favorite quotes from this book. It feels like an act of pure worship on Lewis's part in the way that he describes God. And also quite funny because from the perspective of a demon, all the glory and goodness of God is just revolting to them. And almost in tapping into that revolting element from Screwtape's voice, we gain an even better picture of the beauty and glory of God that in spite of himself, Screwtape cannot deny the truth of God's goodness. I think it's beautiful. But why did Lewis mention it in this particular letter? What aspect of the human condition, sin, temptation, struggle, is Lewis dealing with here? So the letter starts out with Screwtape basically saying to Wormwood, oh, you think that your patient's faith has finally dipped, that he's finally sort of foregoing his faith, he's no longer a Christian anymore. And you really, you think that's the case, do you? And you think that you've got something to do with it, do you? Ha, wrong. Let me teach you about a little something called the law of undulation. Lewis talks about this in other areas of his writing, but effectively what he's referring to when he says the law of undulation and what, what screw tape is, is leaning on in his letter to Wormwood is this very well-known idea that as humans, we have ebbs and flows in life. We have peaks and valleys. We have highs and lows. However you want to just insert your cliche here. But we know what they're talking about, right? We all get it. None of us have had a completely static existence. None of us have had a life of eternal suffering or eternal joy. And in this particular instance for the patient in the book, he's going through a low in his spiritual journey. And I'm going to lean heavily on my own personal experience as I unpack this particular letter. And I am not in any way trying to speak for you and your journey of faith or your journey as a human through suffering. I'm just going to speak for myself and share what I've learned and how it seems to really relate to what Lewis is getting at here. So this letter is looking at the aspect of the human condition that is in constant flux and how because of the nature of who we are as humans, that flux is really in conflict with some deep desires that we hold. Let me explain what I mean by this. In fact, let me let Screwtape explain to you what we mean by this. Let me grab my copy again. Humans are amphibians, Screwtape says, half spirit and half animal. The enemy's determination to produce such a revolting hybrid was one of the things that determined our father to withdraw his support from him. As spirits, they belong to the eternal world, but as animals, they inhabit time. 
This means that while their spirit can be directed to an eternal object, their bodies, passions, and imaginations are in continual change. For to be in time means to change. Their nearest approach to constancy, therefore, is undulation, the repeated return to a level from which they repeatedly fall back, a series of troughs and peaks. So effectively, what we're saying here is that the very nature of time requires change. And ironically, change is the only thing which remains a constant truth, in spite of the fact that we would probably wish it different. Because we belong to the eternal world, and yet we inhabit time. We face continual change in time while we seek to satisfy what I call eternity hungers. What I mean by this, and I know I'm using a lot of Christianese here, eternity hungers is a phrase that I particularly like to use. What I mean here is that Screwtape is describing the fabric of humanity, how we're made up, and we're made up of both a fleshy temporary body, we're amphibians, we're animals in a sense, and an eternal spirit, a spirit that lives on even after this body decays. This is what I meant when I said we're getting into some heavy Christian theology. If you are very new to Christian theology, I'm just going to invite you to go with me on this. And if you've got questions, by all means, feel free to get in touch. You can email me at uh, magiclikethis at substack.com. And I'd be more than happy to sort of point you towards some resources that can help you unpack these really heavy bits of Christian theology. But for all intents and purposes, just roll with me on this, okay? As Christians, we believe that our spirits live on. We believe that our spirits do not die even when the body we're in decays. I know this is wild. Sometimes even as I say it, I'm like, I really do believe this, don't I? This is insane. But yes, I really, really do believe this. And what that means is that if I'm in a spirit that was made for eternity, I hunger for things that are outside the scope of time. I hunger for things that are eternal. I hunger for things that are not subject to the law of undulation. Lewis is leaning very heavily on his own personal experience here in a way when he talks about how we are both eternal beings and animals. Because if you were ever to read his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he talks about this experience that he has repeatedly throughout his life that he calls joy with a capital J. And effectively what he's describing is these moments where the veil between heaven and earth gets thin. And for a brief moment, his eternal spirit and all the things it longs for is met with the briefest glimpse of satisfaction as it barely touches the hem of God's eternity. And he's filled with this indescribable joy and yet this deep longing and hunger at the same time because almost as quickly as the veil lifts, it drops again. And he's left in the void of longing for it even more. There's a quote from Lewis that says something along the lines of, if I find in myself a desire which nothing in this world can satisfy, the most obvious explanation is that I was made for another world. I refer to these desires as eternity hungers. And I'm going to speak from personal experience and then I'm going to invite you to think about where this might be relevant to you. For me personally, no matter how satisfied I've been in my life, and I've been pretty satisfied, you guys, I've had seasons of just utter joy and peace and calm. And I'm so, so grateful. And yet there's still a part of me that feels like 
there's just a little hole, there's something that's missing. And some might say, well, maybe you're not in a good place with God at the moment because there is this common thing that um, Christians will say, if, if you've got a hole, then God's, gonna, God's the one to fill it. And that's true. I believe that's entirely true. And it's often used in reference to people who don't know God at all yet. They'll say, if you feel something is missing, there's got to be more to life than this, and you don't know God, well, the discovery of God and, and the reality that he is true, he is real, fills that hole. And yes, it does. But also, I already know that God is real. I know that he is true. And yet I still feel a little hole inside of me. And what I believe that hole is, is that I was designed to be in the physical presence of my God. I was designed to be in the physical presence of my creator. And on this side of heaven, in this mortal body that is plagued with imperfection and sin, I cannot physically dwell in the presence of God the Father. And I will forever feel the longing of that, this side of heaven, until I am, this is the next huge bit of Christian theology, until I'm in my resurrected body. Yes, I did just say that. Another part of Christian theology, and this all uh, hinges on the existence of Jesus of Nazareth, who is described in the Gospels and throughout the New Testament, is that Jesus is the Son of God. He's effectively God incarnate as a human man, who came to live the perfect life that we're incapable of living as as lay humans because we are incapable of never sinning this side of heaven we're we're all prone to some sorts of sinful behavior and the minute we sin we are not worthy of being in god's presence purely for the fact that god by definition is perfection holiness and righteousness well the minute you tarnish perfection it's no longer perfect perfection cannot dwell in the presence of imperfection and sin and the evil that comes with it must be extinguished. It has to be eliminated. A loving God can do nothing less than eliminate that which is evil. And so the penalty of sin is death. All of us, by virtue of being sinful, deserve our mortal bodies to be where we end. The evil that we're all capable of to some extent, the sin that we're all capable of, deserves to be extinguished at the end of our mortal lives. And yet, God loved us so much that he didn't want that to be the end of us. And because we couldn't live a perfect life ourselves, he sent his son, who's documented in the Gospels, who performed miracles and preached of the kingdom of heaven and was witnessed by thousands. This is something that I think is forgotten sometimes. The Gospels were not just written with a tiny group of men locked in a room trying to create the biggest scandal of all time by writing of this man. He was witnessed, Jesus was witnessed by thousands. The miracles he performed that are written in the Gospels are written as a witness of thousands, okay? And he performed these miracles as the Son of God. He lived a perfect life and preached how to live well to everyone that he met. And then he took the penalty of death on himself because he was the only one who wasn't worthy of that penalty. He gave himself up as a living sacrifice, taking that on himself and paying the, the cost that we deserve to pay. And then after three days of laying in a tomb, after being 
crucified on a cross and taking the penalty of death, three days later, the Easter story, right? We all know it. He rose again. And again, this was witnessed by hundreds, hundreds of people. He walked around on this earth for 40 days after he rose again. He didn't just rise again, show himself to a handful of people and then ascend into the sky. He spent time on earth for 40 days walking and talking with his disciples and being seen with the scars in his hands. He took the penalty of death for us and then he rose again. And it is that truth, I just gave you the whole gospel in a nutshell, it is that truth that Jesus came in a resurrected body and we are promised equally a resurrected body. We are promised to come back our eternal spirits in bodies that won't decay. This is wild. I know. I know it's wild. Um, I'm not trying to make light of it in the sense that I'm mocking it because I truly believe this. So if I'm mocking it, I'm mocking myself. I really, really, really believe this because I believe in the truth of the gospels. I believe in the historicity of them. And my spirit has communed with God in a way that confirms to me that he is real, that the God described in the scriptures is the real one. I've had experiences myself that confirm this. Now, the Holy Spirit, which is something I'm going to refer to a lot throughout, is the spirit that Jesus left with us on earth when he did, after 40 days, ascend back up into heaven. He said, I'm going to leave with you my helper, my spirit. And that is a spirit that we still have access to, whose presence I have experienced in my daily life. But I believe that I was made to experience more than just the Holy Spirit. I was made to experience the whole Trinity. I was made to experience the presence of God the Father, Christ the Son, and his Holy Spirit. And for as long as I live on this earth this side of heaven, in this mortal body, I am still in a sinful body that cannot dwell in the perfect existence of God. And I will always feel a longing that cannot be satisfied until I'm in the presence of my maker. There is an eternity hunger in me, a hunger for perfection, righteousness, beauty, for no more grief or sorrow or crying. For every aspect of suffering to be eliminated, there is a hollowness and a longing in me that cannot be satisfied because that perfect world only exists in the physical presence of God the Father, Christ the Son, and his Holy Spirit. But scripture promises that that day is coming, that day where we will get to fully dwell in the presence of righteousness and perfection because we too will be in resurrected bodies that have been made perfect and holy sin will be no more and the suffering that comes with it. And so for as long as we live this side of heaven in these mortal bodies as Christians, we long for something eternal. We long for a joy that never ends. We long for a suffering that never returns. And yet in these mortal bodies, while we're animals, we experience the law of undulation. Do you see where I'm going with this Princess Bride quote now? I've just done a full recap of the Gospels. <laughs> Fencing, fighting, torture. Okay, let's get to revenge, monsters, chases, and escapes now. All right, so I've laid some groundwork for you guys. Now I'm going to move into how this is relevant for us in the here and now, where we have longings of what only eternity can give us, longings of perfection, ease, joy, no more suffering, and yet we live in these mortal bodies and this mortal world that is subject to suffering and death and decay and sorrow and grief. What do we do 
with the peaks and the troughs, with the ebbs and the flows, with the highs and the lows. I did not mean to rhyme. Okie doke, let's keep going. <laughs> what do we do? What do we do when we are particularly in, in the gutter, in the lows of our life, okay? This is what this letter is primarily looking at. It's looking at what do we do when we're in the valleys, when we're in the valley of the shadow of death. Well, in my experience, when I've been in those valleys, like I said, I'm not going to project anything onto you. I'm just going to share my own experience. In my experience, when I've been in those valleys, I have really had to <laughs> make some game time decisions about how I'm going to relate to God. What I'm going to do with my relationship with him. Am I going to press deeper and fight for that relationship or am I going to throw in the towel? Because let me tell you, in my experience, there's nothing like suffering to make you question the goodness of God. Nothing. When I have been in my darkest seasons of life, I have sat in the absolute sorrow of wondering if my entire worldview is complete shambles. If either there is no God at all, or even worse, there is a God and he doesn't care one ounce about me. And actually, he's not a good God. He's not the God of the Bible. I have wondered those things in my valley seasons. I have asked those questions. Screwtape says, now it may surprise you to learn that in God's efforts to get permanent possession of a soul, he relies on the troughs even more than on the peaks. How is that so? And does that make God cruel? I think that it can often be perceived, especially in an evangelical culture, which is the culture I was raised in, it can often be perceived that suffering and sorrow are somehow trials that are given to us by God intentionally to deepen our faith. And if that's true, that's a very cruel God. I do think sometimes suffering happens as the result of our own sin, our own bad choices have bad consequences. But if we describe God consistently as a loving father, I can't picture any loving father who would actively give their child utter grief and suffering as a way of improving his relationship with them. And we use quippy phrases like, God gives his toughest battles to his strongest soldiers, as if that somehow makes it sound like God's being kind by divvying out sorrow and agony to you to deepen your faith. I don't think that that's what it means when we talk about this idea that God relies on the troughs more than the peaks to deepen our faith. I don't think that means that he's dishing out suffering to you to deepen your faith. What I think it means, and some may disagree with me on this, this is my theology and I can promise you I've spent a lot of time and study and prayer and just open conversation with God on this for many, many years. But what I believe is that suffering, suffering happens from a myriad of reasons. It happens, again, like I said, because of our own sin or the sin of other people's. Sometimes, you know, for instance, if you have been an addict for 20 years and your health suffers because you've been an addict, that is the natural consequence of bad choices that you've made. If someone else has uh, been an addict and that's impacted your feeling of safety and it's caused you sensations of trauma and PTSD because someone else in your life had addictive behaviors that were abusive, 
you're suffering the consequences of someone else's sin. So much of our suffering is by virtue of either us making bad choices or someone else making bad choices, but then sometimes suffering just happens and we don't know why. I'm thinking of the the mother who loses a baby. I'm thinking of the car accident that just steals a family away. Those things are not because God has divvied out some sorts of suffering to test your faith. Those things are not some form of punishment for your own sin. I don't believe that wholeheartedly in my bones. I cannot believe that that's in keeping with the character of the God I know. What I do know is that suffering happens for a lot of different reasons, and sometimes we can trace it back to a cause and sometimes we can't. But regardless of the cause, when Screwtape says that God relies on the troughs even more than the peaks, what I believe that means is that in our deepest moments of agony, God is there in a way that is so poignantly real and so viscerally life-changing that it solidifies our belief in his goodness more than any peak ever could. (laughs) However, it requires from us a choice to look for him in the valley, to ask him questions, to press deeper. And in my own seasons of grief, I could have very easily chosen to just turn my back and say, no, no good God would let me go through this. I'm done. I have done that actually at times in my life. Or I can choose to say, okay, God, nothing around me implies that you're good right now, but you say so. Show me how that's still true. And let me tell you, he has answered that prayer. Even in seasons of silence where I haven't felt his presence, I've still had access to his word. I've still had the ability to pray. I've still had people who know him and love him, who almost represent elements of his love to me, people around me and my church family. I've experienced him not always through a divine thought or an encounter with his presence, but I've experienced him through his word, through other books. Let me tell you, one of the things that pulled me out of one of the darkest seasons of my life was a book by Pete Gregg called God on Mute, which is effectively about engaging the silence of unanswered prayer and finding where God still is in those moments where he seems silent. That wasn't even scripture. That was God using someone else and what he revealed to someone else to then reveal himself to me. We touch each other in lots of different ways as Christians. God reveals himself to others through us. And what a privilege, what a gift, right? There's a reason that I wanted to start a book club because Lewis's work has been so vital in showing me facets of who God is. And so with access to scripture and friends and heroes of the faith and books and the blessing of the ability to read, we can find God even in the valleys if we choose to look. There's a choice here. There's an act of submission. And that is sort of the primary theme of this letter, this letter that is my favorite letter in the whole book. The choice to submit when you already feel like you've been kicked on the ground, feels like the opposite of dignifying. And if you've listened to any previous episodes before, you'll know that I've got this big thing about dignity and how God dignifies us. And how undignifying does it feel if you are already in the valley on your hands and knees 
and you're told to submit. And you might be thinking, submit what? I've got nothing left. I've got a shred of my faith. I've got no joy. I've got no hope. What do I have to submit? It can feel incredibly undignifying. And that is where this quote that I opened up with feels relevant. And I'm going to unpack it and show you why submission is not all of the things that we have been led to assume it is because of how that word's been used in our culture. Just a side note here, the word submit has been weaponized against me as a woman in the church. It's been used as a way of completely invalidating my voice and my autonomy. And so whatever associations you might have with the word submit, please know that I hear you. And if that word's been weaponized against you, please know that that's not how I'm intending to use that word. Submission here does not mean losing your autonomy, giving up your dignity. I'm proposing to you that in this upside down world that God's created, it's the exact opposite. And here's why. I'm going to reread that quote that I opened this letter with. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons and daughters. We want to suck in he wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. I'm gonna go down a little bit and read a little more of this passage. Merely to override a human will, as his felt presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish, he can only woo. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. This passage has been a vital pillar of my understanding of who God is. I'm an Enneagram 4. If you know anything about the Enneagram, it's just a really useful sort of personality classification to give us tools through language to understand one another and what motivates us. And an Enneagram 4 is the deeply creative person, the person who's motivated by beauty and individuality. This idea of remaining distinct and individual and unique in God's sight and yet also submitting and conforming to who he is and his will, it's wild to me. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But what Lewis is saying here is that God will never override our will. He wants us to freely choose him. He wants us to submit to him, not by forcing us with the power of his presence, which he could certainly do, but by inviting us to see that in submitting to him, we are submitting to a God who loves us enough to sit with us in the valley of the shadow of death. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. That's a quote from Psalm 23. And if you read the Psalms, you'll see this constant narrative where even in the darkest shadows, 
God remains good and God does not turn his back on us. He does not shy away from our pain or our fear. And he also doesn't override our desire to curse him and question him. In fact, he invites that freedom of choice to either lead us to him or at his own heartbreak away from him. And we get to choose. So when I talk about submitting to him, what that looks like practically for me is sitting in my questions and in my doubt and trusting that he is good enough to sit with me in those questions and in that doubt and asking him to reveal himself to me. And as he does that, and he doesn't have to, but as he does that, as he chooses to reveal a little piece of his character to me, I'm wooed. <laughs> I'm, I'm in love with the goodness of who he is in juxtaposition to the suffering that I'm in. I see a little glimpse of my eternity hunger being met and I want to be like him. I want to submit to his goodness because I want to be that good. I want to submit to his righteousness and his holiness and his beauty because I can't think of anything better. And he invites us to be swallowed into himself in the sense of becoming like him and unified with him and learning how to be as good and beautiful and kind as he is. And yet he still honors us as individual and unique and distinct. He won't force our hand. He always gives us free choice. And so submitting to him doesn't look like losing who we are. It looks like becoming who we were always made to be. Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, True love, miracles. I have never felt the presence of God in the room with me more than as I sit here recording this episode. I can't tell you how much I pray for you to experience the goodness of God in your valleys. How much I hope that you know that his goodness is an invitation to freedom and beauty and glory. And that that longing that you feel, that eternity hunger, it will be satisfied. And I believe that because the person of Jesus did come and did die and did raise again from the dead and he is still alive, seated on the throne of heaven and his spirit dwells with me. I feel him in the room. I pray that you do too. I wanted to finish by mentioning a book that is launching next week. It's not mine. I have no invested interest in this. I'm not paid to talk about this, but I freely joined the launch team of Kristen Lavalley's book, Even If He Doesn't. It's her first ever book, and it's her sharing her story of being pregnant with her twin daughters and being told relatively early in the pregnancy that there were some complications and that she would have to terminate one baby in order to save the other. And how that experience plunged her into the valley of the shadow of death and what God taught her in that season of suffering. I think it's a beautifully refreshing book that challenges the trite phrases that the church often uses in regards to suffering because as the church we aren't often encouraged to really engage with suffering and with our theology in a way that invites the tumultuous foundations of doubt and let me tell you on the other side of doubt and curiosity is 100% a clearer picture of the goodness of God. And that is what Kristen did and the journey that she shares in this book is what happened as she dug into the questions that suffering prompted in her and what did God reveal to her 
And was he a more dazzling picture on the other side than he ever was through the lens of Kristen's theology before she entered these seasons of suffering? It feels like a really perfect time to mention this book when I'm reading a letter that says how God relies on the troughs even more than the peaks to solidify his relationship with us. Kristen's book is a stunning story of that, but it's not trite. It's not patronizing. It's so raw and real and honest. If you pre-order it and you can pre-order it on Amazon, on Eden's website here in the UK, um, pretty much wherever books are sold, there's lots of places where you can pre-order it before it launches next week. Um, The pre-order comes with lots of little bonus goodies that you can access. What you'll have to do is go on a specific page on Kristen's website and enter in your order number and you'll get all these little pre-order bonuses of uh, exclusive podcast episodes that she recorded in relation to the book. There's loads of stuff and it's just brilliant. I will put all of the details in the show notes of this episode. Like I said, I have no reason to encourage you to buy this book apart from if this episode resonated with you, I promise you this book will resonate with you as well. I have listened to the audiobook version of it and it's just, there's been moments where I've just felt that like, oh, plunge in my gut because it resonates so deeply and it's so stunning and I feel like it's a book that uh, the church needs, that our generation needs, that people who are struggling with their faith and maybe deconstructing need. I really, really encourage you if you are in a season of difficulty, struggle, doubt, grab a copy of this book. It's called Even If He Doesn't by Kristen Lavalley. And if you pre-order it, that does so much to help her as an author. Pre-orders make a massive difference to authors. So I'll put all the details on how to do that in the show notes. But to close off, I'm going to do what I always do. If you're new here, I always end with a psalm. And so today I'm going to be ending with a section of Psalm 119. I was actually studying this this morning and it just felt like a perfect reflection of what it looks like to submit to God because you're so in love with who he is and his goodness is so worthy. There's no point in submitting to a God of any kind, trusting him with your raw and vulnerable self believing that freedom can be found in him through the act of submission. There's no point in any of that unless he is truly who he says he is, unless he is good enough, righteous enough, loving enough. Only then is he worthy of our submission and he is worthy. And I love this psalm because it is an act of worship and acknowledgement of God's worthiness through the words of someone who wants to submit, who prays for the ability to be like God. And so I'm just going to read a short excerpt of that psalm to you. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I have sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. I thought about my ways and turned my steps back to your decrees. I hurried, not hesitating to keep your commands. Though the ropes of the wicked were wrapped around me, I did not forget your instruction. I rise at midnight to thank you for your righteous judgments. I am a friend to all who fear you, to those who keep your precepts. Lord, the earth is filled with your faithful love. Teach me your statutes. All right, friends, it's good to be back. Be blessed. We'll catch up in a few weeks.